Eavesdrop on Experts, a podcast about stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. How is Greek literature, Chinese art and Genghis Khan's army linked to medieval Islam? Well, I couldn't tell you, but Dr. Stefano Carboni could. Stefano Carboni is the former director of the Art Gallery of Western Australia and a recognised curator and scholar of Persian and Islamic art. Several years ago, Stefano was working as a curator in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, getting ready to unveil a new exhibit of Islamic art when the 9-11 terrorist attacks happened. He was left with an uncomfortable question. Should the exhibit still take place when safety wasn't guaranteed and Islamophobia was at its peak? Dr. Stefano Carboni recently visited the University of Melbourne to deliver the MacGeorge Fellowship Lecture on the Wonders of Creation and the Oddities of Existing Things, an encyclopedia of the natural world written by the 13th century physician and astronomer Zakaria ibn Muhammad al-Kazvini. Andy Horvath sat down to talk with Stefano about his life and work, and the many decisions that led the Italian scholar to finally settle in Australia. The medieval Islamic world was a hive of activity. Take us back in time to what was going on. Oh, well, this is a very long interview then. (laughs) Uh, Well, one of the most important things to say is that uh, if you think of uh, a new city like Baghdad, that was founded in 750 AD. Baghdad became the center of the caliphate, of the Abbasid caliphate, and it became one of the most literary cities in the world, together with Andalusia at the time, which was also under Muslim domination at the time. So Baghdad became the center where all the Greek treatises the philosophical and scientific treatises were translated. It was the center of translation. And then, of course, once all the texts were translated into Arabic, the uh, local intelligentsia and academia actually thrived. And so a lot of additional information, additional research and philosophical studies happened. And it was only through the Islamic world that then it re-entered basically Europe in the medieval period. So if we talk from you know, from the 8th century through the 12th, 13th century, that's when uh, Islamic literature and Islamic uh, thinking uh, was really at, it, at its best. So it was a vibrant community of intellectual thinking and infection of ideas, even back to Europe. Tell me about a scholar who you've been studying um, that wrote The Wonders of Creation and Oddities of Existing Things. And I must admit, that's a great title. <laughs> yeah, the title is actually much better in Arabic. Oh, yes, say it. <laughs> in Arabic, is it, it has a nice rhyming to this, as they used to do quite often. So the Arabic is Ajaib al-Makhluqat wa Gharaib al-Mawjudat. So it, you can hear the, the rhyming, which translated into English is The Wonders of Creation and the 
strange things or the oddities of the existing things. So it's a bit of a mouthful in English, but in Arabic it's great. So this is a text that was compiled by a very interesting character. His name was Zakaria ibn Muhammad al-Khazvini, meaning that he was originally from the town of Khazvin in central Iran, kind of west of Tehran. And he was young, he was only 18, when the Mongols arrived in 1220, more or less. Uh, he was born at the very beginning of the cent- of the 13th century. Right, so the Mongol hordes yeah. were starting to invade that yeah. area. The Mongols were sweeping through that area, and so Kazvin, the city, was uh, attacked and half destroyed. And uh, Zakaria ibn Muhammad uh, came from a literary family. He, you know, His father was uh, a legal scholar. And so what they did, uh, they sent Muhammad to uh, a law school in Mosul, uh, which is in northern Iraq. So obviously, you know, the, the boundaries weren't the same at the time. And so he spent most of his uh, formative years as a scholar in Mosul, in northern Iraq. And he met with a lot of philosophers, a lot of the, the big names like Ibn Arabi and others at the time. And then he became, uh, he had two jobs, basically. He was hired as the chief Qadi or chief judge in an area south of Baghdad, uh, Wasit and Hilla. And so he was the Qadi until the very end of his life. He died in uh, 1283. And uh, he was also a teacher, a professor of law and religion and many other things uh, in one of the madrasas, uh, one of the of the uh, schools, uh, religious schools in uh, Wasit. And so that was his life. And he survived actually the, the change because... Uh, it was in 1240, about, that he became judge and, and professor. So this was at the end of the Abbasid Caliphate in, in Baghdad. And the Mongols actually took Baghdad in, uh, in 1253. And so there was a huge change of uh, political life and everything else. But actually for Zakaria Muhammad al-Khazvini, it didn't really change much because they kept him in the same position. And so he was part, of course, of the literary circles in uh, Iraq. And he was an advisor, actually, to the Mongol governor of the area. And so he wrote uh, two major works. uh, And one of these is The Wonders of Creation, which is uh, a kind of compilation of the knowledge of the universe, trying to organize it uh, in a proper way, right? So starting from the outer spheres uh, where the throne of God is found and then coming down to the spheres of the sphere of the angels, the fixed stars, the planets, the sublunar sphere, and then everything that happens on Earth that includes the sphere of air, so all the uh, the phenomenon, the atmospherical phenomenon that happen in on sure. our sky in our skies. So it was life, yeah. universe and everything. Exactly. And what is really good about what he does is that Obviously, he was a compiler. He was looking at all these sources uh, and put the names. So, no, say, and uh, Al-Biruni said that uh, uh, the lightning happens this way. So it's not that he was kind of claiming any any particular uh, uh, new theory. Uh, but what he did, uh, he organized everything in alphabetical order in the various sections, which was an innovation at the time. And the main thing is that... Um, in his uh, 
kind of introduction to the to the text, he very clearly states his philosophy towards what he's about to write about. And he was really a Neoplatonic. He was following Aristotle. So he had read all of these, uh, uh, the Greek uh, philosophers. And so he explained exactly what he means with the four words that form the title. And uh, in the end, uh, the reader shouldn't be surprised uh, of all the strange things that are in the world, uh, like you know, the fish with uh, three heads uh, and whatever that is being reported by the geographers. And uh, So uh, this guy was a lover of mm-hmm. lists and ideas and happenings and observations, and he yeah. was a compendium builder. Exactly, exactly, yeah. 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 Now tell me about some of those observations that he collected, like you mentioned things like three-headed fishes or encounters with giant whales, I yes. think is in mm-hmm. this book. Also in this book are shipwrecks, mm-hmm. people living in trees, yep. dog-headed people, you're going to have to explain yep. that one, <laughs> and giant birds and things like that. Yeah. So explain some of these oddities. They oh, sound fascinating. Yeah, there is, especially in the section on the oceans, right, on the, on the, in the sphere of, uh, of water, uh, the theory uh, that is taken from all the geographers, uh, starting from, from even Pliny. So, so you know, obviously it's, it's a chain of uh, transmission of, uh, of these uh, reports that sailors uh, brought back from uh, the far reaches of the ocean. So the theory is that uh, uh, we don't know what the boundaries of Earth are because there is, there is a surrounding ocean. Right? Sure. Yeah. So, so we don't know the boundaries of the surrounding ocean, but we know that this ocean has a number of gulfs that are called the Sea of China, the Sea of Persia, the Red Sea, the White Sea, which is the Mediterranean, the Caspian Sea. And so he starts to describe the various gulfs of the surrounding ocean and saying that these oceans have innumerable islands that are, some of them are inhabited and some of them are uninhabited and so this is what is being reported as to the island that is very close to uh, what is today's Java right which was very very far away so there are these reports of uh, people uh, who have their uh, head on their chest uh, or people living on the trees and being winged uh, and being cannibals uh, and uh, the cynocephaly so the the dog-headed people that's what I was going to ask about actually this is a, a, a group of people living on one of the islands of this of the sea of China basically uh, that uh, are cannibals uh, and what they do when people arrive uh, at their place, uh, they would make them uh, prisoners. Uh, they would keep them uh, in, a, in a place. Uh, they would feed them uh, with very nice things. Uh, and in the end, when they are fat enough, they would have a meal, right? But this, the cynocephaly is actually already reported in the Greek sources. So it's a transmission of uh, information that comes uh, for a couple of millennia. Or no, some of the of the things that are mentioned in the in Homer's Iliad are picked up also by the Arab geographers. This so, is an yeah. extraordinary collection and sort of 
audit mm-hmm. of our planet exactly yeah. in the sort yeah. of middle of the 13th century exactly yeah we are in not 1280 basically yes. he finished his uh, his work yeah. yes yeah now he was part of the mongol empire mm-hmm. at this stage yeah. was that the era of genghis khan yes uh, so the the mongols uh, obviously swept no, the mongols are an incredible phenomenon in the history of uh, of the world uh, um because uh, they came out of uh, northern China, basically, uh, from what is today Mongolia. And uh, in the space of just a couple of decades, uh, with Genghis Khan being the leader and having this vision that uh, he was supposed to rule the world, they obviously took advantage of the fact that uh, um, the Chinese uh, empire was not united uh, and uh, quite weak on the, on the military side. And the Mongols were fabulous uh, uh, riders, of course, uh, uh, having these uh, almost pony horses, very small horses, uh, that were incredibly resilient. And uh, they were particularly adapted to warfare on horses. And so it was relatively easy at the beginning to just jump into China, move south, realize that it was uh, a much better place, uh, less cold, uh, and where they could settle and really rule. But Genghis Khan has this kind of mission to become the world conqueror, basically. Which he kind of did for a Which while. Which he did. Well, mm. if you think, the Mongol Empire didn't really last for a very long period, about a century altogether, you know, 130, 40 years. But as of today, is the largest empire that was ever built in the world. If you think from the Sea of Japan, from the, from the eastern border of Asia all the way to raids in Europe, basically. So the border west was uh, with the Mamluk Empire, so Syria, Iraq, that was the border. But then the Golden Horde conquered, so one of the branches of the Mongols conquered what is today Caucasus and uh, and the, Russia. Yes, the right? Caucasian Exactly, basin. and they got yep. into Hungary as yes, well. Yes, I so, know. Yeah, exactly. Yes, they, so, they certainly yeah. made it all the way yeah. past the Caucasian mountains. Mm-hmm. So he would have probably, I'm going to try and channel Genghis Khan, mm-hmm. I'd be thinking if I was a world dominator, these intellectuals are useful to me. They can record my grandeur, my political prowess, and that actually a vibrant culture is good. It's healthy. It has well-being. So um, I get why he kept... Uh, well, these are Muhammad. the successors of Genghis Khan, of course. So the empire was established, and in 1256, one of his sons had conquered Persia. So they moved into an area that obviously had a very long-standing tradition, not only Islamic, Muslim tradition, but obviously much older because the Persians still today, they feel that they have, they're one of the oldest civilizations on earth. And so what happened within the space of just a few decades, the Ilkhanid dynasty was established, which was literally the meaning of Ilkhanid is lesser Khan, which means that they reported to the main house in Beijing, right? Uh, was the Yuan dynasty, basically. Um, but they established themselves as the ruler over Iran. They converted to Islam, which was a good move, of course. So whether it was sincere or not, we don't know. But uh, in, in the 1290s, they converted. It's the uh, Arab equivalent of uh, when in Rome, do what the Romans do. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. 
and uh, as a kind of propaganda way of looking at the at the reality of the situation they sold themselves as uh, the persian ruler over a muslim uh, area and so they developed uh, you know after i mean i'm not saying that the mongols didn't destroy because they they made uh, tabula rasa of a lot of cities and mm. really it was quite bad they made a for mess. a while they made a mess but by the end of the century in um, in uh, the area in iran tabriz uh, in northwestern iran had become one of the most cosmopolitan cities in the world with merchants from uh, from europe uh, venetian merchants genoese pisa uh, from pisa uh, and uh, from france they were there and of course the connection with china was incredibly strong because they were reporting basically to the emperor and so we have this mix of uh, different uh, traditions ideas uh, um, visual uh, um, uh, clues that uh, allowed an incredible uh, expanse of uh, the arts and culture and let's talk so, about that yeah. so let's talk about the artworks yeah. that are part of this mm-hmm. amazing treaties and text, Mm -hmm. um, The Wonders of Creation and its longer title, because this is really what you honed in on with Mm -hmm. your research and analysis. Give us a little bit of an introduction to the artwork that was part of this work. Well, I think that it's important, you know, The Wonders of Creation is one of the aspects of this and perhaps not even a very central one because it was considered more of an encyclopedia of natural history than a kind of philosophical work. But as part of the legitimization of the Mongols to be in Iran, um, the vizier of the Ilkhanid Sultan, uh, his name was Rashid ad-Din, and he was actually a converted Jew who converted to Islam, and uh, uh, he was the the mind behind uh, the uh, cultural developments uh, in Tabriz and in the in the empire. If you think that uh, he founded a place, a, a kind of uh, it's called the Kitab Khane, which is basically an atelier, an atelier of production of culture in Tabriz uh, in 1310. And uh, the idea was that uh, they would produce uh, every year a new text, uh, which was a history of the world. In, uh, in Persian, it's called the Jamia Tavarikh. And uh, he set up to create uh, one copy in Persian and one in Arabic that would be produced every year and would be distributed to the libraries of the empire, including, of course, being sent to China. Because the history of the world included the history of everything that was known Mm. uh, from the Chinese uh, uh, emperors to the Franks, to the Farang, the the foreigners there in Europe. And this is the very first history of the world in, in the world that was ever conceived Tabriz, 1315. So you can imagine the type of intellectual life that was going on in Tabriz at the time. And this is thanks to the Mongols, basically. Yeah. This is an audio interview, but give us a sense of one of your favourite images mm. um, that you like to share with people the artwork of the time. Oh, it's a bit difficult to say, of course, in a radio <laughs> interview, but... Uh, 
one of the great moments in the history of um, the development of uh, Persian painting, right? Uh, so when uh, the kind of general public uh, think about uh, miniature painting. They think of these uh, Persian miniatures that are incredibly beautifully refined with a lot of gold and all the arabesques uh, and beautiful compositions, very flat as well. And uh, in the Mongol period, uh, it was a very exciting moment because it's a kind of formation of what will come in the next centuries. And so it's the integration of uh, what had been done before and in a more, strictly speaking, Arab rather than Persian environment. And so the tradition of illustration, because we are talking only about illustrations in books, right? That's, that's what, uh, what developed in this area. Uh, so it was very much, uh, before the arrival of the Mongols, was very much related to the uh, Byzantine tradition. So the majority of books would be illustrated scientific manuscripts or even uh, works of Arabic literature uh, that uh, looked very much in the tradition of late Byzantine art, right? The Mongols arrive and they bring with them the Chinese tradition, right? And so at some point we have this kind of awkward integration of uh, a, an almost Byzantine looking scene with, uh, I don't know, there is uh, at some point uh, a tree that is uh, a hybrid between a peony and a pomegranate. Right, it is in the frontispiece of a book produced in 1280, I think. no, 1290. So east and west, yeah, east and west, without even understanding how to do it. <laughs> but within uh, 20 years, then you have a full integration of all these uh, Chinese clouds and Chinese rock formations and peonies and all the uh, the visual tradition of China that arrived through obviously scrolls, but also textiles and movable uh, uh, objects integrated in a new idiom that was entirely Persian as well. And so it's, it's a, an incredibly important period in the formation of, uh, of, the, of art history, basically, in, uh, in Iran. Dr. Stefano, I want to talk a little bit about you. Yes. You're an interesting character in yourself. <laughs> oh. um, born in Italy. Yes. Um, in Venice. Mm -hmm. yep. What happened next? You then moved... Yes. And how did you get into medieval Islamic art? Well, you know, my trajectory is, um, um, yeah, maybe a bit unusual if you wish, but, uh, you know, I grew up in, in Venice. Venice is my hometown. I literally grew up at the Lido, which is, uh, you know, the island that separates the lagoon from the sea. It's the place where the film festival takes place, where you go to the beach. So I'm, you know, kind of part-time beach boy in many ways uh, during the summer, of course. And I was interested in languages, in studying languages. And I felt when you have to decide what you do when you're grown up, when, uh, when you go to uh, university, um, Venice uh, is a city that, uh, because of its history, uh, has also a good school of Oriental languages uh, that was established already in the 17th, uh, 18th century and uh, it's been you know, one of the, of the good places to study Oriental studies and Oriental languages. And so I felt that I needed some kind of challenge 
and uh, I didn't want to study uh, English or, or French or German because I felt that, uh, well, in, also if I want to be an academic, the competition is going to be ridiculous and all these kind of things. And so I went to see what courses were taught at the, at the Oriental side of uh, languages. And uh, I, I was kind of captivated by the idea of, of giving to try to study Arabic because I felt that uh, uh, even if I didn't have any connection whatsoever that I, I knew about, uh, I felt that it was geographically close enough for me to no, if I was interested uh, to um, get more to the cultural side uh, uh, in addition to the um, language side. And so I enrolled in, uh, in the Arabic courses uh, and uh, because uh, uh, there were a number of uh, courses that were taught, one of these was Islamic art. And uh, the teacher was a very well-known scholar in the field who used to be at the Metropolitan Museum, uh, a German uh, who had married an Italian who was teaching at uh, the university as well. And so he was at least temporarily in, uh, in Venice. Uh, so, and Venice is a place where, you know, you are exposed uh, every day from uh, uh, ancient to medieval uh, to non-Western uh, to contemporary through the Biennale. So obviously it was in my, you know, always in my kind of background. And uh, I still remember the first uh, uh, lesson I went to uh, by Professor Grube. And I said, wow, what is this? And uh, I decided almost the second year, I became one of his students and he mentored me through the years. And uh, I decided very early on to put uh, my language skills in the service of art history rather than the other way around. And, uh, and so that's how I moved on. I left Italy because uh, the academic path uh, would be really very slow. There were only a couple of uh, academic positions and uh, you know, my generation would be probably uh, be left out. You, you and, ended up in New York. Well, I ended up in New York. I moved to London first because I got a, a, a fellowship, a grant to do a, a postgraduate course. And so my PhD is from SOAS, the School of Oriental and African Studies of London University in Islamic art and archaeology. I spent about a year and a half in Cairo. Uh, so that was a very formative period, of course, in my life because it was being exposed to the living culture and language in, uh, in an Arab country. And uh, just when I was about to finish my PhD, uh, I was offered a position of uh, junior curator at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And so that's when I moved to New York. To New York, mm -hmm. and uh, I um, I grew in the in the Metropolitan Museum as a curator and as a scholar. And uh, um, the rest is history. The rest is history. So I was in New York for sixteen years. I used to teach courses of Islamic art as well at uh, different colleges in New York. And then, uh, um, for many different reasons, I felt that uh, I could give to a museum. Uh, more than my curatorial expertise, because the Met prepares you in many ways for higher office. And also because of family-related reasons, my wife grew up in Australia, actually, uh, even if she's a bit complicated. She's a Chinese-born Russian who emigrated to Australia when she was very young. Uh, we felt that with two young children, uh, 
probably moving to Australia would be a good a good thing living oh, yeah, great. in New York. <laughs> and so that's how I ended up being the director and CEO of the Art Gallery of Western Australia, which is mostly a modern and contemporary museum with not a single work of Islamic art, of course. But that was a very different uh, job that I was doing. And as I said, I just finished my tenure there a month ago. Dr. Stefano Carboni, I really appreciate talking to you. In some ways, you're actually the voice and mouthpiece for that wonderful 13th century author (laughs) because the continued reflection of the history of the world and what the Arab Islamic world added to our cultural understanding of where we'd been and where we're going is still living through you. Oh, that's that's so nice of you. Yes, definitely. Now, one of the things that... uh, um, kind of propels me into and and really motivates me into um, studying Islamic art uh, is that it's an educational mission as well, both when I was a curator and as a, as a teacher, as a, as a lecturer. I think it's very important to show that history and the perception of history can be modified, can be changed, and the, the, the current perception of what the Muslim world is, uh, that is very monolithic uh, and quite negative uh, in many ways. Uh, There are so many nuances and uh, it has to be put into a perspective. Because there is an awkward relationship with Muslim culture, do you think perhaps art Mm -hmm. is the way in? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, uh, I can mention uh, just one example Um, When I was at the Metropolitan Museum, obviously I was in New York the day of 9-11, which was, uh, you know, in many ways a moment that changed the the world. But from the professional point of view, apart from the fact that, you know, we were all uh, like living in a in a film, you know, living in a movie, and it was really so, so surreal what happened. But from the practical point of view, I had organized uh, together with the direct with the Corning Museum of Glass. Corning is a beautiful museum about four hour drive north uh, north of New York. Uh, we had organized uh, a significant uh, a major exhibition of Islamic glass. It was called Glass of the Sultans. And uh, uh, the exhibition um, had three venues. The first one was Corning, the second was the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and then you would go to Athens, uh, the Benaki Museum in Athens. Um, the venue in Corning uh, had closed uh, in uh, late August. So September 11 was the day when all the trucks were supposed to leave Corning to come to New York. And then we would install the exhibition in New York. So when the news came in the morning of uh, something is going on in, uh, in New York, uh, we had to stop everything. So all the couriers, everyone, all the lenders, we had something like 27 different lenders. We didn't know what to do. And certainly, you know, it wasn't a priority because, oh, you know, my God, what's happening in, uh, in the world? But it was the day after that we had to face some kind of, uh, of solution and to try to, to work out whether it was too dangerous to do an exhibition of Islamic art at the Met because uh, are they going to hit us again? Or, uh, as I suggested to my director and to the board of trustees, uh, 
don't you think that an exhibition that shows beautiful works of art that were created during the medieval period that talk to a civilization that uh, is uh, is wonderful and it's scholarly and uh, it, it's not certainly uh, in any way controversial don't you think that it could be a point of solace for the New Yorkers and the visitors and so I left it that way and I was incredibly happy when uh, um, the board decided uh, there's no reason why we shouldn't do it and uh, I remember working the phone with the director of the Corning Museum because uh, we wanted to make sure that all the lenders were comfortable with this uh, because after all they were their objects uh, and not a single one uh, refused to lend to the Metropolitan Museum venue. So we had the exhibition. And that's a way, really, you try to put art in the service of uh, humanity, <laughs> literally, of, uh, of humankind. And uh, um, it was actually understood as uh, a very good thing that we did. That's a beautiful message mm. to think about next time we look at some Islamic art. Wonderful. Thank you, Dr. Stefano Carboni. And thank you so much, Andy, for having me here. It was a pleasure to be actually affiliated with uh, the University of Melbourne uh, with the Mac George Fellowship, and I hope there will be other opportunities. It's our pleasure. Thank you to Dr. Stefano Carboni, former director of the Art Gallery of Western Australia and curator and scholar of Persian and Islamic art. And thanks to our reporter, Dr. Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on September 5, 2019. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Audio engineering by me, Chris Hatzis. Co-production, Sylvie Van Wall and Dr. Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2019, the University of Melbourne. If you enjoyed this episode, drop us a review on Apple Podcasts and check out the rest of the Eavesdrop episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis, producer and editor. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.